0: Pages 6 through 8 today contain an outline for our sermon as we continue in Mark 7 to look at the teachings of the gospel in the life of Jesus. This is Mark 7, verses 24 through 37, as we continue in the life of Christ. Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it. Yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. First let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Lord, she replied, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he told her, for such a reply you may go. The demon has left your daughter. She went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon gone. Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon down to the Sea of of Galilee and into the region of the Decapolis. And there some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk, And they begged Jesus to place his hand on him. After he took him aside, away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears. Then he spit and touched the man's tongue. And he looked up to heaven, and with a deep sigh said to him, Ephrathah, which means be opened. At this the man's ears were opened, his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak plainly. Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone, but the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. People were overwhelmed with excitement. He has done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. This is God's word. Let us pray. We thank you, Lord, for your word and for the marvelous pictures we have here of the life of Jesus. May we learn from him again this day. And by your spirit, may these words be applied to our hearts and lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Maybe the people are beginning to catch on. Maybe as time has gone on and Jesus has begun to teach them again and again that He's not going to be a political Messiah, that He's not going to change everything about the Roman Empire and all about their daily lives having to do with taxes and the Roman soldiers that are around them, maybe they're beginning to see that His kingdom is even better than that. For you see and notice at the end of of this passage, people were overwhelmed with amazement He has done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. They're beginning to hear him. He has been saying since the beginning and giving his identity that he is bringing in a kingdom that opposes every other kingdom. It's not like anything else on earth. Not in that day, not in ours. He is in his way opposing every culture, every religion, and every idol of our heart. He would be supreme, but not in an outward and political and powerful way, but rather working from the inside out. So every value that we have of ourselves and every cultural value of every nation and every generation is turned on its head by what is called the kingdom of God. And he's been teaching and telling about that now for some time. We come now to his first foray out of the Holy Land, out of the traditional boundaries of the Promised Land and into the land of the Gentiles. And I dare say this is one of the most comforting passages that we could read. You notice on the cover of our bulletin this morning we have a quote from Gerhardus Voss. For he says, As once in the Incarnation he came down from heaven to seek mankind, so he still comes down silently from heaven in the case of each sinner and pursues his search for that individual soul, following it through all the mazes of its waywardness and the devious paths of its folly, sometimes into the very brink of destruction, until at last his grace overtakes it. What we have here described in Mark 7 is the overtaking grace, the advancing grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, particularly in the lives of two people, but very illustrative of how he works he works quietly unspectacularly until you see the results he comes in such a way that is reticent and humble not with big pomp and fury and majesty and yet he changes things these two people's lives are not going to be the same this is a real kingdom this is not a kingdom of spin or of appearances This is a kingdom of real transformation, but it is, as we said, an upside-down kingdom and one that flows, as Kevin has said, and we said the last several weeks, from the inside out. Jesus said, I came not to be served, but to serve, and to give my life as a ransom for many. Kings don't talk that way. Not in any other kingdom but this, and we learn what our response can be. In the first case, we have the response of an aggressive woman who is just beside herself with her daughter's illness. It's a spiritual illness. It doesn't seem to be a fever or some kind of virus. She has an evil spirit, as many times has happened in these early chapters of Mark. Jesus addresses that and casts it out. She comes to him, and she asks for his help. First, the woman was a Greek, it says, a Gentile, born in Syria and Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. And at first, he is reluctant, or at least outwardly so. He says, uh, first let the children eat all they want. What does that mean? He's talking about my people. Let's let the Jews have the first crack at the grace of God. He's giving her a theological response in the the form of an illustration. And she's very astute. She picks up immediately what he's saying. She knows that she's an outsider. Again, a very important concept in the kingdom of God is that the citizens of the kingdom may sometimes come from outside the kingdom. Here he is reaching and extending his, his grasp beyond Jerusalem, beyond Galilee, beyond Palestine, and into the area of the region of the vicinity of Tyre, way up to the north. And he's saying to this woman, who's well aware of her gentileness, as is he, at first, what right do you have to come in? On what basis should I hear you? I am a Jew... I am not a Gentile. You are coming to me asking for something. Why should I help you? She responds, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. She persists. She comes boldly and persistently into his presence and says, I want you to bless me. We see this many times in the Scriptures, but I want you to notice that especially today, she will not take no for an answer. She comes seeking the Lord's help. Passionately, personally, she wants him to give her an answer. And the fact that there is a Gentile barrier, the fact that there may be a male-female barrier, the fact that they don't know each other is another barrier, she crosses all of them and says, I want you to hear me, and I want you to help me. So she comes, first of all, boldly. She knew that she was in every way unclean and that she has no invitation to this party. He has come into a house. She hears about him being in the neighborhood. Does she know the people who own the house? Perhaps so, but she she comes regardless. She will not stop begging him. Matthew includes the detail that the disciples tried to push her away, tried to keep sort of a fence around Jesus like secret service so to speak and she said no, no, no I'm coming through, I'm going to keep begging I'm going to get louder if I have to she is persistent she is not too proud to accept what is true about her unworthiness she has no access to this man formally but she comes anyway she comes persistently She doesn't allow that to stop her. She accepts that Jesus must first go to the Jews. She's got that. But I will not let you go, she says, like Jacob, until you bless me. I will not stop pursuing you until you give me an answer. She is neither too proud to come and ask again and again, nor does she feel too lowly about herself, to self-loathing to say, well, I guess I just don't deserve these things, so I'll just move along. Thomas Cranmer, in his statement regarding the table of the Lord, captures this attitude. He says, we do not presume to come to this thy holy table, O merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in thy manifold and great mercies. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under thy table, but thou art the same Lord whose property is always to have mercy." She knows she's not worthy, but still she comes. The disciples are pushing her away. The other barriers that I've mentioned are in the way, but still she comes, boldly, persistently, aggressively. But as we look at the bigger picture, we know, first of all, in the application that it was Jesus who came to her, too. The wider context of this is that Jesus has come to her town. And though he hasn't set up a, a, a place of someone who would take all comers and announced himself publicly like, uh, like Lucy selling uh, lemonade and peanuts, she, he, he has come to her place and he is working in her heart. He is drawing her to himself. We can't see it, And certainly not being involved, we can't feel it, but so it's happening. Jesus deliberately came to her area. It is no accident that she learned about him, and it is no surprise to him that she should appear. He is seeking and saving the lost. Just as he knew that Zacchaeus was up in the tree, so he knew that this woman lived in Tyre in the vicinity and had a daughter who was not well. Well. But for her part, I note, it is just as much a rejection of the love of God to refuse to seek Him on account of your unworthiness as it is to reject that love on the basis of your self-righteousness. The Pharisees say they don't need a Savior because they're saving themselves. She might have said, "I I need a Savior, but I can't have one, and so I'll just quit. But she persists. She continues to seek. Like the woman who grabbed the hem of his garment, Like the man who was lowered down through the ceiling, she continues to pursue Jesus through any means that she has. And she doesn't let her unworthiness and her lack of access to him stop her. Her boldness and her persistence, as I say, model how we may and how we should approach God. Boldly, the Hebrews writer writes, let us come boldly before the throne of grace. And certainly she does. Another illustration comes to us from Jesus' life in Luke 7 where another Gentile comes boldly before him and sends his servant and says, My servant is ill. Please just say the word and he'll be well. And Jesus ultimately says, I haven't seen faith like this in the whole nation of Israel. This man comes boldly to me and he asks what he wants and and, and he, he persists until I answer. Now we could misapply this and say, The key element here is boldness. Now, the key element here is Jesus' grace. But the lesson is that we may come boldly before the throne of grace and should, even if we feel that we have been by our own sins disqualified or because we feel by our own self-loathing or self-depredation that we are not worthy. So I say to conclude this first section, don't be too proud to accept what the gospel says about your unworthiness. She accepts it. I'm an outsider. I have no access here. I'm a Gentile among Jews. I'm in in a sense an unbeliever among believers, but I'm asking you. And Jesus commends her for it. Secondly, don't be too despondent to accept what the gospel says about how loved you are. You might say, well, I'm just a Gentile and I have no access to Jesus, so I won't bother him today. Jesus is using this person to illustrate that his kingdom is made up of people who seek and and search for him, like Zacchaeus did. Secondly, we have this story of the man born deaf and blind and Dumb, how can we approach him this way? Why why is it that we can approach him this way? The man is there, and in this instance, his friends bring him like the one who was lowered through the ceiling. There some people brought him, to him, a man who was deaf and could hardly talk, and they begged Jesus to place his hand on him. Now the boldness is on the part of others who are coming to see Jesus and who want to be a part of his, want their friend to be a part of his life. So he took, his, uh, hand, took him aside, away from the crowd, put his fingers into the man's ears, then he spit and touched the man's tongue. Contrast, yes. In the other instance, the, Jesus just says so, and the daughter is healed. In this case, he places his hands upon the man, and in sort of a couple-stage process, begins the process of healing. He takes the deaf-mute man aside and performs several actions unnecessary, really, in the, in the sense of uh, he wasn't following a manual on how to hi- heal people. He was teaching that it could be done in this way. It is for man's sake that he does these things, he, for in three reasons, I believe, why he takes this man aside like this. First of all, cognitively, he must have somehow motioned to this man what he intended to do. What do you want from me? How can I help you? Perhaps he used sign language to show him, I'm not going to hurt you. I'm going to try to heal you. So he comes into the man's understanding, first of all. Secondly, he takes him aside. He doesn't want to make a further spectacle of him. He identifies with him, and he takes him aside, and ministers to him at least semi-privately. And then redemptively. It says that he moans. Mogalalon is the word from Isaiah 35. Only two places in the Bible where this word occurs, here and there. To those who are close students of the Scripture, we read, Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. It's a rare word with His true intent. He is going to change the people of His kingdom. He's going to heal them. And especially He's going to be able to make them hear. The primary deficit that this man has is that he's deaf. It affects his speech as a result. The primary skill of the kingdom of God is to be able to listen to him, to seek to want to know, to seek to have him guide us, to seek to have him be our teacher and not listen to what we think or our own ideas. So on the cross, the ultimate child of God was thrown away. He was cast out from the table without a crumb so that those of us who are not children of God could be adopted and be fed and be brought in to eat at that table. The child had to become a dog so that we as sinful dogs could become sons and daughters at his table. And for his tongue to be loose, Jesus had to become the lamb who was dumb before his shearers. As he stood silent before before them. The result of this is that we have an assertiveness, a rightless assertiveness. That is, it's not our right, but we get it based on his grace and invitation, his goodness to us. This is about coming after the things you don't deserve because of his merit. Asking, seeking, knocking. Jesus said, come after me. I will give it to you. Tell me what you want. Don't just wait for me to give it to you. I already know what you need. I already know what you want. But be bold and persistent in coming to me on behalf of your family, your desires, and your friends. Do not insult me by not seeking me. Don't give me that cold shoulder, that indifferent heart that says, well, whatever you want to do, I I will accept. Come with some liveliness and mercy. He doesn't always give us what we need because he knows better than we do. But cultural and racial barriers are no problem for him at all. And so to this woman who boldly pursues him and to this man who is carried by his friends, there is transformation. There isn't just one way to come to the Lord. There isn't just one way to serve in this kingdom. Sometimes we come with boldness like Jacob and say, I will not let you go until you bless me. Sometimes we come when others bring us, and the Lord operates on us as a great physician to bring healing and change. And so I come to the final statement, and quote there on the last page, 8. Open to him are a thousand ways to bring you and me to the very place and point where he desires to meet us. How many of us would have been saved if the Lord had waited until we sought him out? Thanks be to God, he is a Savior who seeks the lost, who with his eyes supernaturally far-sighted, discerns us a long way off and draws our interest to him by the sweet constraint of his grace until we are face to face with him and our soul is saved. So the title of the sermon, The Sweet Constraint of His Grace. Jesus is operating both on the aggressive woman and the passive man to touch and to reach into their lives and pull them to himself. And so he continues to operate upon us by the sweet constraint of his grace to teach us about his kingdom, to offer us a place in his family, and to guide us in our daily lives. This he is doing now for you and for me. For just as once he came in his incarnation to minister to these people, so now he continues by his Spirit to reach down and minister to us today by the sweet constraint of his grace. Always guided by that. Always interested in our benefit and welfare. Always coming after us to pursue, to love, and to care for us. Always constrained by his mercy when we might have received his condemnation always coming because he loves us. He is operating in that way upon you at this time just as he did with the woman who was aggressive and bold and persistent and with the man who was brought by his friends. Don't insult him by refusing to ask. Don't insult him by standing off and saying, well, I'll just wait and see what happens. Come to him. Come boldly to him. The way has been opened. He wants to hear from you. Ask, seek, knock, he says. And as he works upon us, accept the changes that he brings, the transformation of our lives, It's his great purpose and his great joy. Let us pray. Thank you, Lord, for always treating us with mercy and grace. Though we don't deserve it and do not have access because of our sin's disqualification, you still continue to pursue and seek your people. And we thank you. We thank you that you are a king and a messiah who does not sit away on some remote and lofty throne, but who comes down, takes off his outer garment, and washes the feet of his disciples and cares for their welfare. Guide us this week, we pray, that we may come like the Syrophoenician woman, boldly to seek and ask and knock, and like the man who was unable to hear, may you open our eyes that we would hear what you would teach us. Change us into good listeners, eager to learn of the kingdom of God and of the different ways that you would have for us from what we might think of for ourselves. Thank you for your patience. In Jesus' name, amen.